from New York, this is Democracy Now! Evening-ish, ladies and gentlemen. The ship has reached the shore. Nearly 200 countries have agreed to protect biodiversity in the world's oceans after a decade of negotiations. We'll look at the historic UN High Seas Treaty. Then, Tennessee bans gender-affirming health care for minors, becoming the latest state to target the trans community. We'll speak with Chase Strangio of the ACLU. In 2023, already over 400 bills have been introduced in states across the country targeting LGBTQ people, the majority of these bills targeting trans people. It's just the beginning of March, and four states have already banned healthcare for trans adolescents, and we're seeing these bills escalate with efforts to ban care for adults, as well as efforts to criminalize trans people using the restroom. Plus, brand threat. That's what Fox executives called Fox reporters and anchors questioning Trump's false election claims. We'll speak with the president of Media Matters. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. At the United Nations, negotiators from more than 190 countries have agreed to the first-ever international treaty to protect the high seas. The historic agreement caps nearly 20 years of efforts by conservation groups. It seeks to establish marine protected areas covering 30 percent of the world's seas by 2030 to protect ocean and biodiversity. Environmentalists hailed the treaty's passage as a major milestone, calling on nations to swiftly adopt and ratify it. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature said in a statement the treaty, quote, closes essential gaps in international law and offers a framework for governments to work together to protect global ocean health, climate resilience, and the socioeconomic well-being and food security of billions of people, unquote. We'll have more on the High Seas Treaty after headlines. The International Atomic Energy Agency and Iran have agreed to increase cooperation and monitoring of nuclear activities following a visit by IAEA Chief Rafael Grossi to Tehran. We have agreed uh, is on a number of uh, uh, concrete actions like accesses that we are going to have um, to information and places. I believe that uh, uh, an improvement, a marked improvement, at least in terms of my dialogue with the Iranian government, uh, has been registered. The agreement offered a glimmer of hope following recent reports Iran successfully enriched uranium to near weapons-grade level and amid stalled talks on reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which the U.S. withdrew from in 2018 under President Trump. In Iran, worried parents protested in the streets of Tehran and other cities Saturday following a spate of apparent poisonings at dozens of girls' schools since November. Last week, authorities said they would investigate the attacks, which have 
affected hundreds of students as well as teachers and staff. Human Rights Watch warned authorities, quote, long history of disregard for the basic rights of Iranian citizens, especially women and girls, leaves little reason to be hopeful, unquote. This is a teacher at one of the targeted schools describing the experience. The students all felt the same symptoms as me. They had coughs. Some of them said their eyes burned, and most of them were scared. New report by the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Afghanistan warns the Taliban has normalized systemic violence and human rights abuses against women and girls and says it may amount to gender persecution, a crime against humanity. The report condemns cases of arbitrary arrests of women protesters, as well as bans on women and girls from schools, most jobs, and even their use of public parks. The report also finds journalists and dissidents are subjected to surveillance, harassment, violence and detention. Economic sanctions on the Taliban and the loss of foreign aid have also exacerbated humanitarian concerns in Afghanistan, as an estimated almost 19 million Afghans, or half the population, are experiencing hunger. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan evaded arrest Sunday, as police showed up at his home in Lahore, where hundreds of his supporters protested outside. Khan is accused of corruption and terrorism charges he denies. He has been demanding a snap election since his ouster in a parliamentary vote early last year. Pakistan's media regulator has banned the broadcasting of speeches and news conferences by Imran Khan. In Bangladesh, a massive fire at a refugee camp in Cox's Bazar has left at least 12,000 Rohingya Muslims without shelter. Some 2,000 housing structures, as well as health clinics, learning centers, water distributing facilities, and over two dozen mosques were destroyed by the blaze. Many refugees returned to the site today to try to salvage some of their belongings from the burnt rubble. Authorities say one person has been detained in connection with the fire, which is still under investigation. Cox Cox's Bazaar houses over a million Rohingya Muslims forced to flee violent persecution in Burma beginning in 2017. In Nigeria, an explosion at a Shell oil pipeline killed at least 12 people Friday in the Southern River State. The blast came during a theft of crude oil, a booming illicit industry in Nigeria. In related news, over 13,000 residents of the oil-rich Niger Delta joined a landmark British lawsuit against Shell and its Nigerian subsidiary earlier this year. The lawsuit's demanding compensation and cleanup for dozens of oil spills that have devastated land and waterways destroying local livelihoods and ecosystems. To see Democracy Now!'s documentary, Drilling and Killing, Chevron and Nigeria's oil dictatorship, go to democracynow.org. The U.K. will start removing asylum seekers who arrive on small boats through the English Channel, barring anyone who lands on British soil through non-official ports of entry. Under the new rules, the removed individuals would also be barred from returning to the U.K. The conservative British government of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has vowed to stop the boats as one of its main priorities. 
Elsewhere in Europe, the Italian Coast Guard rescued over 200 migrants off the coast of Lampedusa on Friday, as the far-right government of Georgia Maloney has also imposed draconian anti-refugee policies. Meanwhile, one of the victims of last month's tragic shipwreck off the Calabrian coast has been identified as Shahida Raza, who played on Pakistan's national soccer and field hockey teams. Raza, who is a member of the Shiite Muslim Hazara minority, had fled towards Europe in hopes from providing a better life for her disabled three-year-old son. In Greece, fresh protests rocked the streets of Athens Sunday as anger mounts over last week's train crash that killed 57 people. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis apologized for the disaster Sunday, saying in a statement, quote, we cannot, will not, and must not hide behind human error, he said. The station master at Larissa Railway Station has been detained and awaits trial. Among the 10,000 estimated protesters yesterday were many rail workers. We feel unspeakable grief over the incident. It is tragic. We cannot soothe the pain of the families who lost their kids, nor can we bring them back. But we are here so that nothing remains in darkness, for everything to be revealed to the bone, for those responsible to pay, those who have left the railway to its fate, all the governments, all these years. Here in the United States, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw will testify before a Senate panel Thursday about last month's train derailment and contamination of East Palestine, Ohio. This comes as another Norfolk Southern train derailed near Springfield, Ohio, Saturday, prompting officials to issue a temporary shelter-in-place order. Officials said none of the 28 train cars involved in the crash itself contained hazardous materials, though other sections of the 212-car train did contain dangerous chemicals, including propane. President Biden was in Selma, Alabama, Sunday, to mark the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, when state troopers violently attacked black voting rights activists as they attempted to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Biden sought to refocus attention on voting rights legislation, which has stalled in Congress, as he's expected to soon announce his bid for re-election to vote, the right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. And this fundamental right remains under assault. In Maryland, former President Trump was met with thunderous applause at this year's conservative political action conference, where he delivered the keynote speech Saturday. Trump, who was introduced as the next president of the United States, gave a nearly two-hour address in which he railed against the investigations he's under and lied about winning the 2020 election. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Trump's likely competitor, right-wing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, addressed supporters at a rally in Southern California Sunday, where he repeated his motto, Florida is where woke goes to die. Meanwhile, self-help author Marianne Williamson launched her bid for the Democratic nomination for president this weekend. It is our job to create a vision 
of justice and love that is so powerful that it will override the forces of hatred and injustice and fear. Williamson, who also ran in 2020, said some of her key campaign promises were free health care, free college and free child care. In Atlanta, Georgia, at least 35 people were arrested Sunday as protesters marked the start of a nationwide week of action against Cop City, a $90 million police training facility being built in the Wilani Forest. The Defend the Atlanta Forest Collective said those arrested were peaceful protesters who were attending a concert in the forest when they were surrounded by police. This comes less than two months after Atlanta police shot and killed Manuel Perez uh, Teran, a 26-year-old environmental defender who also went by the name Tortuguita. At least 13 people have died across the United States in recent days from a mix of extreme weather events, including tornadoes, torrential rains and flooding across southern states and historic snowfall on the West Coast. California officials say the unusually wet winter has helped ease some of the state's decade-long drought, though scientists say it would take several consecutive winters, like 2023's, to fully alleviate the statewide drought. Nearly two dozen lawmakers are calling on President Biden to reject a massive oil and gas development in northern Alaska known as the Willow Project. The project was initially approved by President Trump in 2020 and would have allowed ConocoPhillips to extract over 100,000 barrels of oil a day for the next 30 years. The project was halted by a federal judge in 2021 after environmental and indigenous groups sued. Since then, the Biden administration has been considering a scaled-down plan, and a final decision is expected within days. In a letter sent to President Biden Friday, 22 members of the House and Senate wrote, no version of the Willow Master Development Plan is consistent with your commitments to combat the climate crisis and promote environmental justice, unquote. And the trailblazing civil rights activist Judy Heumann died Saturday at the age of 75. She was widely known as the mother of the U.S. disability rights movement for breaking down barriers faced by disabled people and leading campaigns for historic legislation, including the Americans with Disabilities Act. In 1970, Heumann became the first teacher in New York to use a wheelchair— in 1977, she led a 26-day sit-in protest at a federal building in San Francisco that led to enforcement of the Rehabilitation Act's prohibition on discrimination against disabled people. President Biden honored Judy Heumann in a statement writing, quote, after her school principal said she couldn't enter kindergarten because she was using a wheelchair, Judy dedicated the rest of her life to fighting for the inherent dignity of people with disabilities, Biden said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at how nearly 200 countries have agreed to protect biodiversity in the world's oceans. The historic United Nations High Seas Treaty is a legally binding pact that could help reverse marine biodiversity loss by addressing pollution, acidification, and overfishing. It was agreed to at a United Nations conference Saturday. Good evening-ish, ladies and gentlemen. The ship has reached the shore. 
The historic agreement caps nearly two decades of efforts by conservation groups and seeks to establish marine protected areas covering 30 percent of the world's seas by 2030 to protect ocean biodiversity. Environmentalists hailed the treaty's passage as a major milestone. Greenpeace's ocean campaigner Laura Meller called for the treaty to be ratified as quickly as possible to, quote, deliver the fully protected ocean sanctuaries our planet needs, she said. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature said its adoption, quote, closes essential gaps in international law and offers a framework for governments to work together to protect global ocean health, climate resilience, and the socioeconomic well-being and food security of billions of people. For more, we're joined by Minna Epps, a marine biologist and director of the Ocean Team at the International Union for the Conservation in Nature of Nature. She participated in the UN negotiations on the High Seas Treaty. She's joining us now from Geneva, Switzerland. Welcome to Democracy Now. It's great to have you with us, Minna Epps. Talk about the significance of this long negotiated treaty, what it does accomplish and what it doesn't. So, hi. Yes. Uh, good morning to you all. And I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, it is indeed uh, a historical milestone, and it's certainly good news for all our ocean defenders um, out there. So I think it's um, it's it's been long overdue, as you said. So this this treaty um, has been negotiated for the past five years, but as you said, been in discussion for a very long time. And I think that um, our climate, our world has changed quite a lot since um, in terms of the, the importance of the ocean uh, and its benefits and services has really uh, increased on the public, but also political agenda. Um, so I think that the, the momentum was really right. And if we wouldn't have agreed now, then it would have been, um, you know, um, a part failure to kind of protect um our ocean, which is so vital to us. So we, we are increasingly understanding the importance of the ocean in terms of climate change adaptation and mitigation, um, but also to protect biodiversity. Uh, and you alluded to the, the milestone commitment that was made by all states in Kunming Montreal, Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework uh, adopted in December, which really sets out to protect 30%, not just of land and coastal areas, but, but of the ocean. And in order to achieve that, you know, we, we cannot ignore two thirds of the ocean, which is the high seas, the areas beyond national jurisdiction. So um, you mentioned that, you know, we're able to establish marine protected area. So today there hasn't been, you know, any kind of um, mechanism to establish or a legal framework to establish marine protected areas um, in, in the high seas. But this treaty actually um, sets out to do much more than that. Uh, it's really in general to you know, to conserve and sustainable use of marine, biolog uh, um, marine biological diversity beyond national jurisdiction. So um, it really has been a package deal. It's been uh, a long road, and I have to still compliment all the negotiators, especially the last, you know, 40-hour marathon that they went through in order to reach an agreement, which, as we know, multilateralism is being challenged at the moment. And the fact that they were able to reach an agreement, I think, was just so welcome um, and it was incredible. So um, in terms of what this treaty can do, offer it, it's basically a legal 
uh, legal, internationally legally binding treaty under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, which was established about 40 years ago. So this is really kind of looking to actively, you know, conserve and ensure sustainable use. So it's about um, not just about uh, establishing marine protected areas, but also to make sure that, you know, the ocean as a whole is, is and the human activities managed. So we know what we need to do to protect or restore ocean health. We need to remove the threats, enhance recovery and build resilience. And of course, one of the best ways to, to do that uh, is really to, to invest in establishing a network of marine protected areas that can serve those multiple benefits. But it's also about being able to conduct environmental impact assessments uh, to, to ensure that you know, any activity, human activity does not harm, negatively harm the, um, uh, the marine environment. Uh, but also uh, the other part of the package relates to access and benefit sharing of marine genetic resources. Uh, as well as the capacity building needed for uh, marine technology, uh, transfer of marine technology. So that's kind of essential then. But of course, there's a lot of cross-cutting issues that needs to be resolved, whether in terms of dispute settlement, the financial mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. So we are really hopeful. Uh, the text just came out uh, a few hours ago. So we will see what the final details are. But whatever it is, it's welcome and we will have to work with that. I wanted to turn to comments from one of the Russian delegates at the conference who criticized the negotiating process. Given the limited time available, it is impossible to properly review the draft we have just received. Um, large parts of this text are very much new to our delegation and represent parts of deals in which our delegation did not have a chance to participate. We are not prepared to limit our further engagement to technical amendments and reserve our position broadly in this regard. And this is a member of the Nicaraguan delegation. Indeed, yes. Um, um, so you, uh, okay, the sound. Uh, sorry, we're going to play the member Quality. of the. We're going to sorry, we're going to play a member of the Nicaraguan delegation also criticizing the negotiations. Furthermore, we want to uh, express our uh, concern regarding the method of work employed that did not guarantee the equality, equity, the balance, and transparency during this process, with multiple parallel meetings, making it difficult for small delegations to participate, thus excluding some developing countries. Minute apps, if you could respond. Okay, in terms of... Um um, not having enough time. Of course, time was not on their side. Um, but I think that a lot of, um, I think the president handled it quite well. Uh, she was very conscious of being inclusive and listened to various parts. And I believe that some of these um, issues that was brought up by the Russian delegation uh, as uh, or introduced new proposal, the president did remind that a lot of this text have been, the paragraphs have virtually essentially stayed the same in the last few rounds of negotiations. So it wasn't new text per se, and it was basically very late hour to introduce new uh, proposals, which a few countries did rather towards the end. And these were typically countries that have been uh, quite quiet uh, uh, in the previous round and 
um, as we were getting closer to to seal a deal, if you like, basically spoke up more vocally and was in trying to introduce uh, new language, which was basically too, too late in the day. Um, there was some time stalling activities uh, or basically taking the floor and the president really wanted to move this forward. But I think everybody worked on the same premises in terms of having to review the text quite rapidly. I mean, at that stage, they had seen all the texts and there were still some, some changes, but they have been very familiar with the text. So I think that it, time was short for, for all the delegates, but they, they managed to come through. Um, I would say that in terms of the uh, Nicaraguan um, um, comments on basically being on floor, I think that there are uh, there were several, particularly the small island development states that, yes, they have smaller delegation. And I think that, you know, dividing it up to small groups, of course, it is a stretch if you have a smaller delegation. Um, but um, I think that they were really trying to work constructively, having bilaterals, etc., so that, you know, it could be accommodated. I mean, so I think that... I wanted to go to some of the key points, like the agreement to share marine genetic resources. What does that mean? Yes, it basically means that, you know, of, uh, both now or also looking at the future, there might be potential uh, new discoveries, uh, as you wish, in terms of um, mineral, and they could be monetary and non-benefit sharing. But it's basically how can you get access to these and also sharing the benefits Given that the high seas is it's a, a common heritage of humankind, so it kind of belongs to all of us. So there was a lot of discussion and sticking points in terms of um, you know percentage or royalties and benefit sharing, and it really came down to um, you know equity principles of equity, and I think that was you know the major sticking points of the negotiation towards the end was really you know what what in terms of the global, global North and the global South divide in terms of uh, equality and, you know, fair and equitable access and benefit sharing. And requiring environmental checks on deep sea mining. Yeah, so in terms of the seabed floor, it's actually uh, managed by a different authority called the International Seabed Authority, which actually has a mandate to protect, but also explore the deep sea. And there are um, now... Uh, several, um, more than 30 exploration licenses pending that, well, they have been approved for exploration. It basically covers an area, uh, the size of Mongolia, and that could have very significant adverse uh, environmental damage. So uh, it's also, um, there was particular language in this treaty um, that would actually dictate, you know, which presides over it. So make sure that you cannot... Um, the International Seabed Authority cannot uh, issue uh, both exploitation licenses if it will hamper marine biodiversity in the high seas. So it's also how these two um, uh, instruments will actually play out together um, because it's currently managed by a different authorization. So I think what, the, what we really wanted here is, is, is a strong uh, high seas treaty that can actually uh, treat and manage um, the whole governance of the ocean as the, it's the legal framework have been quite fragmented. So and the details. Uh, Dr. Epps, I no. wanted to, since we have so little time, for you to talk about why the oceans are so important when it comes to de dealing with the climate, uh, covering more than 70 percent of the Earth's surface, absorbing 90 percent of the world's excess heat, and also address the amount of plastic in the world's oceans. 
Yeah, so the ocean have, is on a major threat. And I think that um, we talk about plastic pollutions, um, et cetera, in the ocean. And a lot of things that happens um, at the high sea is basically out of sight and out of mind. But what has happened, what you were describing, is that, yes, the ocean have been providing these services as absorbing um, uh, excessive CO2 emissions. But we don't want the ocean to continue to provide those kind of services. We need to cut emissions rapidly in order for, because we have tampered so much with the chemistry of the ocean that I don't think that, you know, general public or policymakers really realize the severe threat. Um, and the UN Secretary General of the United Nations declared an ocean emergency last year. So it's absolutely crucial. And we think that protecting nature and the ocean is really our best ally to fight climate change and build that resilience, but also to help enhance recovery. But there is currently under negotiation, uh, which has just started in Uruguay, to have a global uh, plastic treaty, and uh, a global treaty on um, plastic ban, which actually is being negotiated and hopefully can conclude faster than the High Seas Treaty, which will also have a very positive impact on our ocean to restore ocean health. And what is the implementation of this treaty? And how long did it actually take to negotiate? Um, for, the, for the High Seas Treaty, um, it started in 2018. But actually, before that, you will have preparatory meeting and I think it was decided in 2015 to go forward and and have official rounds of negotiations uh, and they set out four rounds uh, two weeks each um, was the estimated time to conclude now we didn't conclude and the fourth round uh, which was resumed after the global pandemic and as we know um, it was um, a pause of you know more than two years almost two and a half years and the political climate had changed significantly and we came back to a different world because we have to have in-person meeting when it comes to kind of um, uh, international diplomacy. Um, so I think that a lot of governments had changed uh, for the worse, for the better. Um, but I think that was some of the delays that it, in, uh, that it took time, that it wasn't possible just to come back once and conclude. Um, and, you know, we really need to deliver on that promise of multilateralism. So I think that that's the reason why it took so long uh, to agree. And of course, it is a challenge to have 193 countries agreeing. But on the other hand, you know, and nobody is going to come out of this treaty. I mean, everybody's going to be happy that a conclusion has been reached, but not everybody's going to be content of what is in the actual treaty. But of course, if somebody was 100% happy, that means that someone else would, another country or state will not be happy. So it really has been a compromise. Well, we thank you so much for being with us. I know you must be absolutely exhausted, having been at the U.N. all week and the vast, uh, the major 40 hours of negotiations and the final push, and then flying back to Geneva, Switzerland. So we particularly thank you. Minna Epps is marine biologist who participated at the U.N. negotiations on the High Seas Treaty, director of the Ocean Team at the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Next up, we talk about Tennessee and its banning of gender-affirming health care for young people, becoming the latest state to target the trans community. We'll talk to ACLU lawyer Chase Strangio. ACLU is challenging the laws. Stay with us.
Facts. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we look now at the growing conservative attacks on transgender people and the LGBTQ plus community. At this weekend's CPAC meeting, that's the Conservative Political Action Conference, a number of speakers drew alarm with their transphobic comments, including former Trump adviser Sebastian Gorka, who warned Democrats who support trans rights are, quote, mutilating boys and girls. Right-wing Republican Congress member Marjorie Taylor Greene vowed to reintroduce a bill called the Protect Children's Innocence Act that would make it a felony to provide gender-affirming health care for transgender youth. Another speaker was Daily Wire host Michael Knowles. If transgenderism is false, as it is, if men really can't become women, as they cannot, then it's false for everybody, too. And if it's false, then we should not indulge it, especially since that indulgence requires taking away the rights and customs of so many people. If it is false, then for the good of society, and especially for the good of the poor people who have fallen prey to this confusion, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology at every level. Michael Knowles' transphobic comments were widely condemned. Variety's Adam Vary wrote, pay attention, this is genocidal, unquote. This comes as at least 150 bills have been filed by Republican lawmakers across the United States that target transgender people and criminalize doctors who provide transition-related health care for trans youth. Just last week, several pieces of anti-trans legislation were signed into law. Tennessee, Thursday, became the latest state to enact a law banning gender-affirming health care for transgender youth. Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Mississippi, South Dakota and Utah have also enacted bans on the life-saving treatment. The new Mississippi bill blocks public funding for clinics and institutions that offer this type of care. This comes as Nebraska State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh has vowed to bring the state legislature to a halt with a filibuster if lawmakers try to pass anti-trans bills. Collectively decides that legislating hate against children is our priority, then I am going to make it painful painful for everyone. Because if you want to inflict pain upon our children, I am going to inflict pain upon this body. There's not a bill on this agenda, on any agenda coming forward, that will be spared. Every bill will go to cloture. Meanwhile, Tennessee's Republican Governor Bill Lee has faced backlash after a high school photo of him dressed in drag, went viral after he said he would sign a bill criminalizing drag performances performed in public or in front of children. Nationwide, at least 14 bills have been introduced targeting drag shows. In Montana, the House endorsed a bill that, barring anyone under age 18 from attending drag shows, even after emotional testimony from one of the legislature's first openly transgender members, Representative Zoe Zephyr. Um, the bill purports to be about drag, and let me start by saying what drag is. Drag is art. Drag is beautiful. Drag is important to my community. 
um, my community and the rest of the LGBTQ community. There were comments about people who had gone 30 years ago to drag shows and saw adult-focused um, uh, experiences. There's questions as to why are children coming to them now? Well, I'll tell you what happened. We lived. We lived through the AIDS epidemic. We lived through people trying to disallow our marriage. We adopted children. We grew up. And now we're taking some of our children and sharing an art form that's valuable to our community in a way that is age appropriate to them. That's why if you would have come to the drag show on, on Saturday, what you would have seen is people in full length dresses, in beautiful gowns, celebrating our art, our history, and the fact that we're alive today. For more on all of this, we're joined in New York by Chase Stranger, Deputy Director for Trans Justice with the ACLU LGBTQ and HIV Project. Chase, welcome back to Democracy Now! Talk about what happened in Tennessee and talk about what's happening across this country after that very powerful testimony. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I mean, I've been coming on the show for the last seven years to talk about this very issue. And I think taking a step back, what we have to acknowledge is how quickly this has escalated. In 2016, in the wake of marriage equality, we saw the first aggressive contemporary backlash against trans people in the form of the wave of anti-trans bathroom bills. And that rhetoric escalated to attacks on trans participation in sports, attacks on trans youth in schools, uh, using the restroom, participating on sports teams. And how quickly have we gone from that rhetoric, which was understood to be false, including by proponents of it, uh, to this current climate in which we are criminalizing trans adults going to the bathroom, where we are banning evidence-based medical care that is supported by every major medical association, where we are criminalizing gender expression and drag performance. And now we hear the rhetoric behind all of this, which at its core its core has always been about pushing trans people out of public life and eradicating transness. We see it so clearly. And if we look over the course of seven years, this arc brings us to this moment where we are absolutely in crisis. So talk specifically about Tennessee and Governor Bill Lee. Yeah, so a few things have happened in Tennessee, and I will say Tennessee has often been a site of pushing anti-trans legislation. I've spent a lot of time there over the last seven years testifying against bills and supporting the incredible community there. What happened over this last week was SB1 and SB3 were both signed into law. SB1 is the law that categorically bans gender-affirming care for trans adolescents, which in essence will have the effect of cutting down some—excuse uh, uh, me, of shutting down some of the uh, most uh, robust and important sites of gender-affirming care in the South. Um, and then we also have SB3, which is the uh, intended prohibition on drag performance. It is, in fact, a relatively narrow law. And if it is properly enforced, and I think there's a real question about whether that is anything that we could uh, trust, that it uh, is intended to ban drag performance. The governor signed both bills. Uh, he's come under fire for the hypocrisy because he himself has uh, presented in drag. And then, of course, the reality is that these bills aren't about dra banning drag performance. They are not about banning uh, expressions of gender nonconformity, as long as those expressions are seen as serving the status quo. What these bills are about is policing that which is seen as deviant and disruptive of the status quo, policing transness, policing communities coming together to support and celebrate their histories and legacies. They cannot be understood as separate from the many attempts to ban curricula, curricula 
curriculum uh, connections to historically accurate movements of resistance. This is a part of a national effort to cut off communities from their histories, whether those histories are histories of drag, whether those histories are histories of other resistance. We have to understand the bans on drag performance as central and uh, connected to the bans on what we're seeing in the curriculum, what was categorized as so-called critical race theory. And in fact, these two movements, to ban drag and to ban so-called critical race theory, which is really just the banning um, of accurate history, came from the same sources. These are dynamic processes coming from the right. They're designed to control and regulate our bodies and our understanding of our lineages. And the fact that Bill Lee himself is shown in drag? I mean, I think the fact that there's so—I mean, look at Rudy Giuliani, look at uh, uh, President Trump. Drag is something that is wide-reaching in its um, uh, experience in the world. Some of it is done in a way that's uh, based in mockery. Some of it's done in a way that's based in celebration. There is no such thing as an easy and simple way to police gender nonconformity, except in a way that targets communities that are already under assault. I think it's very clear that in every instance of what we're seeing in state legislatures, we can identify identify the hypocrisy. We have lawmakers who consider themselves pro-life who are introducing bills that would uh, punish abortion with the death penalty. We have individuals who are claiming that they are concerned about protecting children when the leading cause of death among children is death by firearms, and that they are focusing their energy on cutting off health care, removing children from loving homes, banning drag performance, and doing nothing to prevent the actual harms that are coming to our children at a time when, by the way, there is substantial evidence that our young people are facing significant mental health crisis across the country. And that crisis is not born of the fact of their transness. It is not born by the fact that they are connecting to their histories or they have more diverse experiences. We know that that's not the reality. The reality is, is that young people have more anxiety. They've been living in a pandemic. They have witnessed gun violence for the entirety of their lives. And we have real, real problems when it comes to what our young people need. And we are legislating in areas that are designed to eradicate population to harm young people, and the hypocrisy is staggering. So I want to talk about the laws banning gender-affirming health care in uh, uh, Tennessee on Thursday. Also last week, the Kentucky House voted to ban access to gender-affirming medical care for youth. Let's turn to Democratic State Senator Karen Berg of Louisville, Kentucky, who lost her transgender son, Henry Berg Brousseau, to suicide in December at the age of 24. She condemned Kentucky's anti-trans bill and shared her son's last actions before he died. The last thing he did at work, before he went home and killed himself, was to send out a press release warning us of what was coming, warning the world of this. That was State Senator Karen Berg. Chase Strangio, take it from there. Talk about these particular bills. Yeah, there is something so insidious about what's going on with these attacks on gender-affirming care, and it is manifesting in ways that is so harmful for our communities. I want to first just acknowledge that I, I knew Henry when he was a youth advocate in Tennessee. I saw him testify before his legislature uh, at a time when they were pushing anti-trans bathroom bills. So there is a population of young people that has spent the entirety or a significant portion of their lives begging their governments not to target them, and the cost of that is significant. 
significant. And right now, what we're seeing in state after state is something that three years ago I thought would have been unimaginable. We are having health care that is evidence-based, that is being recommended by doctors in consultation with parents for young people who are suffering and struggling. And this care works. And what we're seeing now is the legislature's intruding upon the decision-making of doctors, parents, and young people to take away the only evidence-based treatment that transgender people have when they are suffering and there are no other options. And in state after state, we're, we're, we're seeing these b- bills moved. And I must say that they are being fueled in part by a public discourse that has allowed there to be a legitimate debate over whether there are too many transgender people, over whether we have too much access to health care. And I urge people to take a step back and use information you already know about how health care works in this country. It is not easy to access. It is, in fact, incredibly difficult. And it is particularly difficult when it is stigmatized healthcare that a population that faces so much stigma and discrimination needs. We are in a position now, I just got out of a two-week trial in Arkansas over uh, a very similar piece of legislation that we're now seeing uh, in Tennessee and South Dakota and Utah and Mississippi and elsewhere. We had a two-week trial. When tested, when the evidence goes before the court, there is absolutely no basis for these categorical bans. And we should be concerned for everyone if every time a group of lawmakers believes that it is a conspiracy for a group of people to thrive that they start taking away our health care with nothing more than ideological opposition and unverified accounts of things that are simply not happening. We've seen it with abortion, and we're seeing it now with uh, trans-affirming health care, and this is a crisis for our communities. Families are fleeing their states, but they don't know where to go. And I I just want to say, too—oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I just th- that we've heard a lot about this is about children. This is about protecting children. First and foremost, these bills harm children. And second, as we've heard from the comments from CPAC and as we've seen from legislation tar- targeting adults, this is not about targeting only children. This is about categorically attacking the trans community and all of us of I, all ages. I wanted to ask you finally about the role of the media, and we just have about a minute. But over 200 New York Times contributors have published an open letter criticizing the Times' recent coverage of stories involving transgender, non-binary, gender, non-conform, non-conforming people, in particular concerning medical issues. The letter says Republican lawmakers have cited the Times' coverage to justify bans on gender-affirming care for youth. In response, the top editor of The New York Times has defended the paper's coverage of trans issues, warning journalists that such public criticism will, quote, not be tolerated, unquote. GLAAD has accused The New York Times of, quote, irresponsible bias coverage of transgender people going back more than a year. Chase, can you just summarize this debate? Yeah, and it is not going back more than a year. This is going back more than seven years by my count. And we have in the last eight months, I think, 15,000 front page words over just the question of whether trans people are getting too much health care. There is an effort to identify a conspiracy of health care rather than understand the very powerful forces that are at play to try to attack and destabilize the material conditions of trans life. They are asking the wrong questions. They are asking questions that are infused with 
bias that are informed by a global set of imperatives to attack not only trans people, but bodily autonomy and gender nonconformity more generally. And I think this coverage is abhorrent. And I think the idea that they will not tolerate criticism is quite a statement coming from the paper of record, when absolutely we need robust discussions. But there is a lot to look at in their coverage that shows that they are I, they, their entry point is one of bias, not one of fleshing out what is truly going on to the trans co- community right now in this country and around the world. Chase Stranger, I want to thank you for being with us, Deputy Director for Trans Justice with the ACLU, LGBTQ and HIV Project. Next up, brand threat. That's what Fox executives have called Fox reporters and anchors questioning Trump's false election claims. We're going to speak to the president of Media Matters about this, the Dominion lawsuit, and much more. Stay with us. Material by Sophie here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show looking at Fox News and its handling of the 2020 election. In recent weeks, there have been a number of bombshell revelations about the inner workings of the network that have come to light as part of a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox. Rupert Murdoch, owner of Fox News, has admitted under oath that many hosts on his network endorsed Donald Trump's false claims about the 2020 election and that Trump's lawyers like Rudy Giuliani had used Fox to spread what he called really crazy stuff. Murdoch also admitted it was wrong for Fox to keep interviewing pro-Trump conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow. But Murdoch suggested it was done for financial, not political reasons. Murdoch said it's not red or blue, it's green. In court filings, Dominion also revealed Murdoch had given Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, confidential information about Biden's campaign ads, along with debate strategy and possible violation of election laws. Meanwhile, The New York Times has revealed details of a major firestorm within Fox after the network projected on election night in 2020 that Joe Biden had beaten Donald Trump in the state of Arizona. While Fox made the accurate call, many executives regretted making the call because it hurt Fox's ratings among Trump supporters. At one meeting held November 15, 2020, Suzanne Scott, the chief executive of Fox News Media, told others, quote, listen, it's one of the sad realities. If we hadn't called Arizona, those three or four days following Election Day, our ratings would have been higher she said. We're joined now by Angela Caruso. He is president of the watchdog group Media Matters, which recently sent a federal elections commission complaint against Fox News based on evidence from the Dominion lawsuit. Angela, welcome to Democracy Now! Start off by talking about what your filing is about. 
It's basically asking the FEC to investigate the claims that came out of the Dominion filings uh, and then to take the appropriate action. It's it's completely within the the what the letter of the law says that the the Campaigns Act is pretty explicit here. It says that you can't give anything of value to a political candidate that's not, you know, trapped, that's not locked. And in this case, in similar circumstances, it's found that these kinds of private information that could be used for political purposes is a thing of value. Um, And so it seems to me black and white. And so what we wanted to make sure happened is that Fox doesn't, you know, sort of skate accountability because nobody went through and sort of nudged the FEC to take the action that it needed to take, which is to investigate and to and to and to just basically apply the law here. So talk about what we know so far. I mean, people are leading very busy and stressed lives. It's hard to keep following up on this $1.6 billion lawsuit. Why don't you talk about the highlights of the remarkable email trail that has been released? What Sean Hannity and uh, Tucker Carlson, um, Laura Ingram knew at the time— about the lies that were being told by Trump and his supporters and the kind of pressure they brought on any reporter who dared to question because it was damaging the Fox brand. Yeah, I think that to put it just sort of simply, they knew. They all knew. Rupert, all the way from Rupert Murdoch on down to the show producers, they knew what they were saying was not true, that it was actually a lie, um, and they did it anyway. And, you know, just to take a step back and say what this means in practice, well, Fox went from sort of calling some election results to accepting the election results to around that mid-November time period. And the following two weeks after that, they did more than 600 segments in just that last two-week period alone, specifically attacking the election results, promoting the Dominion conspiracies. Um, And so in their coverage, what they really helped do was build the scaffolding for the big lie, which became the sort of fuel for the January 6th insurrection. So that's what it meant in practice. Behind the scenes, they really did know. And they didn't just know, they were deriding the conspiracy theories. Um, They were attacking the promoters of it. uh, And you sort of alluded to some of that in your your intro, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, who's one of the lawyers that was pushing it. um, They called her a lunatic on the same day that they had her on the show. Uh, on their shows, they were texting each other, admonishing the ridiculousness of this, but they did it anyway. Um, they, they had it on the air anyway. And worse, Rupert Murdoch and Fox executives were penalizing um, other Fox personalities that were trying to either sort of soften the claims that that Fox News was pushing about Dominion and about the broader sort of election um, as well as punishing them. I mean, some of them were explicitly punished. Um, so they said that your coverage is too hard. It's too aggressive. You need to change that immediately, almost in real time. I mean, before the show had aired, no, emails and messages were being sent from top executives to show producers telling on-air talent to get it together. So, I mean, they knew. And that's how I would put it simply, is that they knew and they did it anyway. And I feel like, you know, the trail of evidence here is so overwhelming that, um, it, you know, I think Fox is in some, some real legal trouble. And talk about what you mean by saying it's an illegal corporate campaign contribution. 
what you're not supposed to do is give anything of value. That's why we have to have you know all these FEC disclosures. When you give a political donation, it gets tracked, right? Um, in this case, if you give, if you try to get around that disclosure law, that donation law, by giving something that is the equivalent of money that you would need to spend money on, or that could be a considered something of value for for a political campaign, you're either not supposed to do it, or it's supposed to be disclosed. Um, and it's it's pretty clear. So it is an illegal campaign contribution. And I, I think what's significant about this is not only that it's clear in this one instance that Fox News sort of you know b- broke the law, but the part that I think struck me about all of these complaints together and all these filings was that um, it seems so normal. Nothing about what they were saying to each other was considered extraordinary. So when you know the when Rupert Murdoch takes an, an ad and runs away with it to give it to a political campaign, nobody inside Fox seemed to think that that was weird. There's no communication saying, "Hey, should we be doing that? Is that going to be a concern?" When there were instructions to change coverage to help Republicans, I mean, Rupert Murdoch was literally sending messages like that. Um, nobody said, "Wow, that's weird. Should we be doing this?" And I think my big takeaway is that I don't imagine this is the only instance of this. Um, and that, in fact, it, it feels like what we're seeing here is sort of a key, is a keyhole view to how Fox News treats every single other major issue and story. Um, and that means they operate more like a partisan operation than a, than, a, than a news network. And I think there's probably a lot more complaints that could be filed as these things start to unfold. Angelo, in light of all this, can you talk about the Republican House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, giving exclusive access to all of the January 6th footage from, you know, the uh, closed-circuit TV footage all over the Capitol and beyond to Tucker Carlson of Fox. And I, I think that what it, it's two things, how we got there and what it means. How we got there is that it's a reflection of the fact that the right-wing media with Fox as its crown jewel and the Republican Party are really fused together. They're not really two distinct entities that are operating in parallel. They really are one part of one, pil- one big political you know, conglomeration. Um, and so this was actually a major concession that McCarthy had to make during his speaker fight. Um, it was one of the things that far right, some of the far right Republicans who were echoing calls from the right wing media were demanding, and he conceded to that. So the reason that it even happened is that the right wing media pushed a few of their big sort of Republican leaders to then make this an issue during the speaker fight, he conceded. So that's how we got here, is that it was sort of a creature of the right wing media. And we have what 30 means- seconds. What it means is that it's an official rewrite. It's an official rewrite of what happened on January 6th, and they're using Tucker Carlson as sort of the, the, the chief storyteller of that new version of what took place there. And I think we all know what it's going to be. It's going to be lies and conspiracies, that it was a false flag pushed by the Democrats and the news media. And the fact that this is the people's footage, I mean, this is the footage of the Capitol being handed to this private corporation? Yeah, and it's not being done in a transparent way. It feels much more transactional to me than transparent. Well, Angela Carasone, we want to thank you so much for being with us, president of Media Matters, which recently sent a Federal Elections Commission complaint against Fox News based on evidence from the Dominion $1.6 billion lawsuit. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astu, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Massoud, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley. I'm Amy Goodman.